Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Hi, Melissa. Welcome to Episode 75 of the Adoption Connection Podcast. Hey, Lisa. Good to be here. I am so excited about this week's episode. We come across some amazing people as we get to interact either at conferences or speaking events, and you tracked down a story and a half for this week. And I mean, who would have ever thought that we would come across a couple who was part of the neo-Nazi movement and found themselves a transracial adoptive family. I mean, it's just crazy to even say it out loud. It is. It's a really remarkable story. And I love spending time with Greg and Isabel in person, and then even more time with this interview. And I'm just excited to share them with everybody. So Greg and Isabel live in Ontario, Canada. They have 10 children. And They're a really interesting family. They met when they were young in their teens, and they were part of this neo-Nazi movement. They got married. They had a radical spiritual transformation. And then they started this journey of fostering and adopting. And you'll hear through their story just the amazing things that happened. And now they work in family preservation, both in Haiti and in Canada. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. You guys are going to love this interview with Greg and Isabel. Hello, Greg and Isabel. Thank you for coming on the Adoption Connection podcast. It is our pleasure. Yes, thanks for having us. Yeah, this is really neat to have a couple with me and talking about your story and your journey with adoption and everything else. So I'm really, really glad to have you. So. We didn't really plan out who was going to answer what, but does one of you want to tell us a little bit about your family right now, the sort of the composition of it, and then we'll go back and tell your story coming up to this point. Okay, I can do that. Um, So we uh, are a family of 12. So we have, um, uh, God called us into the world of fostering and adoption many years ago. And we have four biological children, and then we've adopted two sibling groups of three through foster care. Okay, and what's the age range right now? Right now, our youngest is 11, and our oldest is 25. And how many are living at home? We have eight living at home currently. Sometimes that flexes, right? (laughs) Yes. Okay, so you still have a house full of children. We sure do, yeah. And that's, that's a wonderful, beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. So I had the privilege of meeting you at uh, the Replanted Conference in Chicago, and we um, just got to talk and got to know each other a little bit, and your story was so powerful and so uh, moving to me that I just wanted you to be able to share it here on the podcast. And I don't know, Greg, if you remember how we even started the conversation, but I mentioned that I was from... North Idaho. And you said something about having been there. And I said, Oh, it's, you know, it was so beautiful. What did you think? And then you shared with me why you were here. And that just unfolded this whole story. So I want to just let you tell that story and let people take it in. I think it's an amazing story of God's incredible grace and his redemptive power. So why don't you just share with us? So um, I used to be a neo-Nazi skinhead, um, which is always a weird way to start a conversation with people, um, much like the conversation about uh, being in Hayden Lake, Idaho. I, I do find it interesting when I gauge uh, where people live by whether or not I had any communication with neo-Nazis and, and uh, things like that throughout my past history. But at a, at a young age, when I was... In my late teens, I got involved with this whole neo-Nazi skinhead scene. And as a sort of an aside, I've learned now that in our work with kids from hard places, that um, sometimes we will choose uh, membership over morality 
And although I didn't come from trauma, I didn't come from a hard place, I still was looking for some sort of meaning and purpose and some sort of uh, group to be a part of. And unfortunately, where I found myself was in the neo-Nazi skinhead scene. And it's not something that my parents ever taught me. Uh, It's just that I gravitated towards that group. I thought they had some solutions to the world's problems that I was seeing going on around me. I had previously been involved with the, the punk rock scene was very much on the left politically looking for answers. I was always looking for answers. I knew there was something wrong with the world and I knew that there was a, a void in me that was not being filled and I couldn't figure it out. So I found myself uh, hanging around with neo-Nazi skinheads and first it was just about the music and it was about the dress and it was about, you know, looking like a tough guy and hanging out with people. And, uh, but soon I began reading books by neo-Nazis and began believing what they were espousing and thinking that, that this was the, the solution that I was looking for. So soon the music part of it began to fade away, the, the skinhead part began to fade away, and the neo-Nazi part began to take uh, predominance in my life. So I was, I was in, I was fully in, even to the point that I began um, hanging out with and, and uh, well, found myself a part of a small group of people who wanted to take our belief system beyond just membership into action and we actually we're, were basically plotting you know to do horrible horrendous things in the name of the white race i found myself in hayden lake idaho at one point at the area nations compound that used to be there and it was there that i was introduced to christian identity and christian identity is this horrible horrible belief system that tries to blend christianity and racism and it, it espouses Uh, this view that when Israel went into captivity that they eventually went over into Europe and founded the European nations and that Europe's history is a history of Israel. And so I'm reading the old Testament and I'm reading it as though this is a book for me as an Israelite, that I am an Israelite, that I am God's chosen people and that Uh, Jews and non-whites are all inferior and to be treated with contempt and uh, just horrible, horrible, horrible things that I thought and believed and said. But I still credit that time with that was the way that the Lord, I believe, drew me to him through his word because it was actually through reading his word that over time I came to see that What the Bible speaks of does not coincide with what I was believing. And I came to this point, particularly in reading Acts, where I see that uh, God is not partial to one group of people, that it is not about race, that is in fact about grace. And so I came to this point where I had to choose, am I going to uh, continue on in this belief system that I don't think I believe anymore or I'm going am I going to submit to God's word and uh, I I say it like it was a choice but I know that when you come face to face with a living God that you cannot turn away and so it was a slow process but through that I just changed my whole outlook on life and began to recognize these people that I once hated are people that I need to love and look at as image bearers of almighty God and look at them with dignity and with love and with compassion. This is jumping ahead a little bit, but we get to a point where uh, I'm basically taking down posters uh, like neo-Nazi posters one day and the next we're putting up pictures, not exactly the next, but over a short period of time, we're putting up pictures of Haitian children that we are sponsoring through uh, an orphanage in Haiti. Uh, And then further, further ahead, three of the children that we adopted are from Nepal. It was a local adoption. They came here as refugees, but uh, nevertheless, they are Nepalese children. So we are now a biracial family. All of that from uh, beginning to end is uh, pretty crazy when I think about it. Uh, Not something I ever thought I would uh, do or that I would find myself where we are today. So I'm just incredibly thankful to God for that. 
So I have so many questions when I hear this story. And this isn't, and I've even heard it before. Okay, I want to ask how you and Isabel met. But before I ask that, I want to ask, um, were you, when you came to this realization that what you had been believing was false Mm -hmm. and evil, Mm -hmm. were you afraid of losing your community? Were you afraid of being alone? How did you make that bridge? Because that is so much a part of the membership and the belonging, right? Well, it was made easier by the fact that by this time, Isabel and I had moved about two hours, two and a half hours north of where we were living in the city. And we moved on to 50 acres uh, with the primary goal of being able to hunker down while the world fell apart around us. So we thought we're going to go, we're going to raise children, we're going to raise goats, we're going to stockpile guns, and we're going to just wait for the world to fall apart. You know, we thought Y2K was going to be the catalyst for that. So by this point, we had already turned our back or, or drifted apart from a lot of the people that we were with. The, the part of when the, this group that I was with started to get serious, it, it, it basically came down to the very first act of declaring war was a bunch of guys went out and robbed a store with the goal being that that was going to be the start of our, our war chest of the money that we were going to raise to buy guns. Well, they immediately got arrested with a very, very small take and went to jail. And that put a great damper on the whole movement that we were a part of. So some people moved out west and some people were in jail. And so it, it was pretty easy to, to, to pull away. And I'm really thankful for that. Yeah. Um, so, Isabel, maybe bring us into where your story is and where you and Greg meet. So, um, yeah, Greg and I actually met at a Motorhead Slayer concert. (laughs) So so we kind of had the same group of friends, but lived in different cities. So we kind of knew each other, but didn't know each other well. Um, And we both actually kind of had crushes on each other for quite a few years before we actually met and got together. But yeah, that's where we did meet the first time and then um, we just kept seeing each other at parties and things afterwards and then eventually uh, we were both single in our early 20s and uh, then we connected, yeah. How did you get involved in that whole, um, I don't know what even to call it, scene is not what I mean, the movement, okay, the movement. Yeah. How did you end up there? Uh, For me, it was definitely a sense of belonging over political. So again, like Greg mentioned, that um, membership, you know, over morality thing. I was already kind of, before I became a skinhead, I was a punk rocker. So I had like the mohawk and and, um, was into that kind of lifestyle already. Um, But then I think what I found in the community was that, you know, in the skinhead community was that it was a connected community and there was just a sense of belonging and there was such a sense of loyalty and commitment and um, just things that I had not really experienced and longed for. So that's what it was for me really coming from a home where, you know, my childhood was quite difficult. My dad had mental illness and so my mom had to work all the time. So it just kind of left me alone a lot. So again, all those things of just that belonging appeals to me, you know, and having that connection and sense of community. That's what drew me to it, really. Mm -hmm. Again, I think that whole, that connection piece is so huge, you know, and when, um, when we don't grow up with that feeling of being connected and having a secure family, like you seek it somewhere. Right. Um, yeah, there's a void. In the best places. <laughs> right. There's a void, 100%. Yeah. And, and did you feel loved in that community? I did. You know, like I feel like it. there was just such a deep sense of loyalty to each other. You know, you had each other's backs. You know, it was funny. We'd, we'd go to fights and it'd be like, you, people would have their, you know, fights with each other, but you knew you had your friends there to have your back, right? In case something else went wrong. And it was just, there was just a very much a, a committed sense of loyalty to each other. Hmm. So fascinating. So, yeah. so Greg's reading the Bible. You guys are, to, are you guys married? Tell, tell us the little story you told me about your wedding. I mean, I don't know if it's really so much a story, but tell, tell us about your wedding, Isabel. 
our, wed <laughs> our wedding took place on a large acreage in the country um, by a clans, uh, former clansman. I don't know, was he a former clansman? He was right? a clansman at the time. He was a clansman at the time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was just honestly a group of our close friends and pictures that we have hidden in a box somewhere because we can't really have pictures out of our wedding or anything but um yeah we and just go ahead. i was just gonna say and and you don't have those pictures out because yeah mm -hmm. no we were just just swastika flags and and the he had a full clansman regalia on yeah wow that's just so hard for me to even picture and imagine so greg you're reading the bible really because you want to confirm that everything you know is everything you believe is true and God begins to open your eyes to something brand new. And so how did this happen for you as a couple? We started like after we moved um, and we're on our 50 acres with our guns, goats and granola and homeschooling. <laughs> we, we, uh, we wanted our kids like at that point we had a faith. It was just a very skewed and awful one but we wanted our children to grow up in a faith community and we didn't have a community around us at all. So we just started sending our kids to the Baptist church, you know, to the Sunday school. And, uh, but our mentality was, you know, we don't need to go. We don't want some Christian telling us what the Bible says. You know, we can read the Bible for ourselves, you know, and that was our mentality. But for me personally, it was more, meeting Christians. Like I just had never met Christians my whole life that had a true relationship with Christ. So I was beginning to meet these people who talked about, you know, Jesus and like they knew him, you know, they talked about the Holy spirit and you know, it was just like, like they knew God or something, you know, I was like, what is that? Like, what does that even mean? You know? So I just became very intrigued and God used that to create a deep desire in my heart to want that relationship with him from viewing other people having that relationship. That was kind of the beginning of a deep stirring for me. So I think it was, uh, it was one day I was actually pregnant with our fourth child, very pregnant. One of my friends from the church had just left and I was just going over in my head just how she was talking about, oh, the Lord did this, the Lord did that. And I was just like, I want that. Like, I want this relationship with God that these people have. And um, she left. And then I, I went outside and I just very pregnant felt to my knees. And I just started sobbing. And I asked the Lord to just be a part of my life. And I called out to him and told him that, you know, like, I want this relationship. I wanted him to be my father. So even though I didn't even know a lot of what that meant, um, he just put that deep desire in my heart. And then I think it was about three weeks later, I had, I had a, well, my daughter was born. We had a home birth and um, I had hemorrhage during the home birth, but it was something that the midwives were able to get under control. But then three weeks later, I started hemorrhaging at home again. And so I had this completely irrational fear that, you know, if, oh, if I go to the hospital, I'm never going to have any more kids. And we, we did want a big family. It's something that God had put on our hearts before, you know, we knew we were going to have the family we we're going to have. I had just had this irrational fear and I was calling people I knew that, you know, had a DNC and just, you know, is this safe? You know, are you still okay? And I got reassurement from reassurance from everywhere that it's just a standard procedure and I had nothing to worry about but because my life had just been filled with chaos it's all I really really knew was chaos and anxiety I that's just obviously was my go-to so that was actually the first time that I fell to my knees and I prayed to God you know like like what do I do I need help and uh, he gave me Philippians 4, 6, which is um, the peace that surpasses all understanding, right? I went and I, I looked up the verse and I read it and it was just like this supernatural peace fell on me that I had never in my life had felt. And it was definitely supernatural. It's just like a blanket just kind of calmed me. And at that point, I knew I had to go to the hospital um, and that I was going to be okay. I just had this this assurance from the Lord that um, it was just what I had to do. 
Uh, plus my life depended on it. <laughs> um, so we did, we went to the hospital and I ended up going under for the DNC. Uh, and then I woke up and I could see Greg at the foot of my bed and I could tell that he was very upset. So it looked like he'd been crying. And I just looked at him and I said, can I? And he just shook his head. No. And while I was under for the DNC, uh, they thought I just had some retained placenta. So they were just going to remove their retained placenta. They didn't realize I had what was called placenta accreta. So the retained placenta had actually rooted itself to the wall of my uterus. So when they went to do the DNC, my uterus ripped right open. So they almost lost me on the table because I had hemorrhaged at home and then at birth and then I hemorrhaged at home and then my uterus ripped open during the procedure. So it was a very traumatic, chaotic experience. You know, they just kind of ran out to Greg. He had our daughter who was just three weeks old and they told him what was going on. And um, yeah, they almost lost me. I had, I think the most fascinating thing about it and how God works is that it was my first time calling out to him, right? As a believer. And my worst fear was that I wouldn't be able to have any more children. He gave me the peace to go. But what happened is what happened. Like he, that didn't stop. But yeah, he gave me that peace so that when I woke up, I still had that peace there. And I had a total confidence that it was okay. That whatever or why ever this happened, um, that God had a plan and I truly believed and trusted in him at that point. Again, like that's a miracle <laughs> because mm-hmm. it was a great fear of mine. So, and I think that had a huge impact on Greg too, is just witnessing what God had done in that moment for me. Mm-hmm. Well, and for people who don't really understand very much about that sort of, I don't know what you would call it, but that sort of survivalist separatist kind of thing. There is mm-hmm. a deep suspicion of medical, the medical oh, yeah. community. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, and I understand this a little bit from my own background that, you know, you, you're not going to trust your reproduction to a stranger, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's why we have our babies at home or, I mean, that's not the only reason, but I yeah. mean, I can kind of feel and imagine what you were thinking that if I, give my body over to them. They don't want me to have more kids. They're already going to think I have yeah. too many or whatever. And then mm-hmm. what you fear did happen. And yet God continued to give you peace. That's really, it's quite powerful. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny that you say that because that is exactly what I said to the doctor when <laughs> he was. came out to me is I said, I was ready to fist fight him in the hospital. And he told me what had happened. And I said something to the effect of, you probably did this because we already have four kids. Like I was so irrational and so angry at him at the same time. And scared, right? And was totally scared. Yeah. yeah. Very thankful for um, the Gideon Bibles that are placed in you know, places like hospitals because that's where I went to. I mean, I went outside. I prayed. I cried really, really loud in the car. Thankful nobody heard me and called the police. And then once I was sort of calmer, I went back in and, and sat with the Bible because that's all I could do at that point. But that was a, sounds like it was a pretty pivotal story in your faith. And it also changed the whole course of your family and the direction you were heading, right? Because you were going to have, give birth to a lot of kids and you were going to sort of hunker down in this space. What year was this by now? This was the year 2000. So you had survived Y2K. Yeah. Right. We, we didn't all die. Our- Nothing yes. happened. <laughs> yeah. And- you just ended up with a lot of freeze-dried soup. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, so now what's the next part of the story? Greg, do you want to take it a little bit from here? So, yeah, so Isabel, you know, she had a, a conversion and it was real and it was both scripture and witnessing it happen with Isabel that God used to just radically, dramatically change my life. And it seemed like after the... um emergency hysterectomy that everywhere we turned we saw signs for the local children's aid society saying that we need foster families we need families and i had always thought that adoption was a great idea but i always thought it's for somebody else because we're going to have our own kids we don't need to do that you know i was a very prideful person you know and before the lord got a hold of me and now i'm just a little bit less prideful but um (laughs) He, he just seemed like everywhere we turned, we saw these signs. So we, we got involved and we, uh, 
we approached the CAS and we said, um, what is your biggest need? Because we already had four children. We knew there's probably lots of other people out there that uh, would love a baby and have not had the blessing of having a baby. So we said, what's your biggest need that's hard to fill? And they said sibling groups. So we said, all right, we're in for sibling groups. So we went through the process, got approved through the local Children's Aid Society, and we had uh, a few placements. And as a foster to adopt home, each of those placements was supposed to be children that were going to be adopted. But they, the first um, many, ended up not going to adoption. Either they went back to the biological parents or went to family. We are thankful in each case that the children went where they needed to go. Uh, but it was hard. It was hard on us. It was hard on our children. One of the placements we had was four children, two boys and two girls, like our family immediately doubled in size. And the, uh, the, the girls in that group were very close to our daughter's age. And it was, it was tough on her because they were just this perfect little team of three crazy young girls just doing crazy young girl things. But every time that the children would come and go, we would always sit down with our four and just say, you know, are you okay with us? carrying on with this you know can you do this again and without fail they always said yes they I guess they they knew coming into it that this was a possibility that children were going to come and children were going to go but eventually we were able to adopt two boys and uh, it was a it was a huge blessing and then their brother was born immediately into care and we adopted him as well so that was our first three that went fully completely to adoption. And then when we moved to London, one of the, uh, the city that we're in now, one of the prerequisites that we had for a home was we wanted a home big enough to be able to take in more children. The home we were living in, so we'd actually moved out of the 50 acres because once, once we got saved, one of the things that we really felt strong about was leaving this property because of everything that this property represented to us, it was the opposite of what Christ would have us to do. This property was about self-sufficiency. It was about isolation, um, all these things that we wanted to get away from. It was the opposite of community. So we moved into a small town and, and that was where we adopted the first three. But then we moved to the city and wanted to buy a house big enough to take in more kids because our old house was like a three bedroom with seven of us at the time, I guess. So uh, yeah, we moved here, got a big enough house to be able to take in more children and almost almost immediately, it wasn't that long that we got a call for three kids from Nepal. And providentially, uh, as it would happen, it was at the same time that the church we began attending here had invited me to go on a missions trip to Nepal. I didn't even know where Nepal was before all of this. So now in a matter of like months, we have Nepalese children living with us while I'm trying my best to get out of going to Nepal because I'm not, or I was not a missions guy. I don't like flying. I don't like foreign food. I don't like being around people I don't know. I'm quite an introvert. So it, it was the opposite of what I wanted to do. But um, I'm thankful that the Lord used Isabel to encourage slash convict me to go and so I did and uh anyways so that's I find that interesting that that God did he was that. actually super miserable miserable to be around <laughs> after he was asked to go to Nepal um he he was like there was such a conflict inside of him between what God wanted him to do and what he wanted to do and it was very evident and he was just it, it drove him like mad um, so yeah, we were praying really hard that he would just make the decision and, <laughs> and go. And what, what year was that, that you went to Nepal? 2012. Okay. Not really. Well, I guess that was a while ago now, but yeah. yeah. Okay. And so did you know from the beginning that you were going to adopt your Nepalese children? Uh, when they were placed with us? Mm-hmm. No, you know, we've gone through enough history in the past to know that things change. Um, it seemed pretty evident considering the, the circumstances, but, but we, we were never sure. And it took a long time 
Uh, seven like years. Two, seven years. Yeah. What? Seven yeah. years. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I was going to back up and say one thing when you talked about moving to London. You live in Canada, not yeah, London, England. Yeah. London, London, in Canada. Ontario. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And I have to say um, London, Ontario, because is there not an Ontario in Idaho or Washington? Not that I know of. Okay. Maybe it's California. Like, I just remember yeah. when I was at Hayden Lake, Idaho, and I would say I'm from Ontario because I knew nobody would know the city I was from. Right. They thought I was from the U.S. So. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, if they listen to you talk, they know you're from Canada. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you do say things just a little differently than yes. how we do. But it's also important to mention that just because um, fostering and adopting laws and things are different in lots of areas. Yeah. And, sure. you know, a lot of our listeners are in the U.S., but not everybody. So, anyhow, I just wanted mm-hmm. to comment about that. And um, just one question. Did you ever feel like when you became a Christian and you were going to this church and you were becoming foster parents, did you ever talk about your past or did you just sort of like, mm, no, we're not going to share that? So the first church that we went to, um, well, I'll say the second, we went to one for a short period of time and then we, we transitioned to a church that was, it was a small church, but it had lots of, well, all the families were homeschoolers and all the families had large children, but no, we, we, didn't really talk about it in, in that context because I felt like I was still, there was still a lot of stuff I was working through. There was stuff where I'm like, am I okay as a Christian? Can I still believe this? And uh, it, it's, it's weird and it's, it's embarrassing to even think about it now, but I would think about things like, okay, as a Christian, am I still allowed to uh, blow up abortion clinics? You know, like I, cause I still had that sort of thought in my mind. So there was a lot of stuff I did not, I did not talk about it. It wasn't until years later that I was, when I felt confident, I guess, that the Lord, you know, had given me assurance of salvation, that I then could freely talk about my past, knowing that both it, I believe it gives glory to God. And I know that people aren't going to look at me and go, is he still one of those crazies? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think a lot about, you know, what we say is that these things that God does in our life are for our good and his glory. And your story really does bring glory to him. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So you have now adopted your first three boys and then your three children who came to you, your Nepalese children. And, and at that point, were you still working, doing something in Isabel? Were you homeschooling? What was, what was life like right then? And then tell Mm -hmm. us where you have gone now in terms of, calling and vocation and ministry? So when we moved, uh, we had we homeschooled for about 18 years. Um, our two oldest, we homeschooled till grade 11. But as the boys kind of got older, it was, it was apparent they had some special needs. And so they did go into the school system. So when we moved, our kids were in school. And um, actually, I'll back up a little bit. So when our oldest daughter was 14, this is before our move, I'm just backing up a bit. She wanted to go on a mission trip to Nepal with the church we're attending and a mission trip to Haiti, sorry, with the church we're attending. And I didn't really know anything about Haiti. Uh, I knew that we were sponsoring kids to go to school there, but you know, I've never really looked into it much, but so I went on the computer of course and looked up and it's, uh, it was like red zone, you know, don't fly. And I just told her, you know, and our, our youngest had just been put in our, in our care and I just kind of told her, you know, let's just pray about this because um, she was 14. And <laughs> I didn't see that I was going to be able to go with her. And Greg was not a missions guy, like at all. Like there was no way Greg was going to go to Haiti. We just prayed and God just made a way for me to go with her on this trip. So that was in 2009 and it was our first trip to Haiti. And uh, we just went to an orphanage there and did some medical and care and some construction and we got to meet the kids that we were sponsoring and go to their homes. And so we just fell in love with the country and the people. So when the church was going the following year, we were just like, hands up, we want to go again. So we went on the trip and that was 2010. So we actually got caught in the earthquake that happened in Haiti. And we were there about five days and then the earthquake hit and we were uh, stuck there about five days after. But just being through that experience, was obviously very traumatic. It was like war. Like it was 
I can't imagine ever experiencing something like that again. But it's um, just created a desire to continue to be involved with Haiti because we had seen what Haiti had before the earthquake, which was not very much. Um, so, and then we, we pretty much felt like the families that we had gotten to know had lost their nothing, you know, like mm. the little bit that they had, that they lost. So God kind of used that to kind of put this deep desire for Haiti in my heart. And we had raised a bunch of money for emergency family tents, like four season tents uh, for families and we were able to send quite a few down there. Uh, and I kept going back to the orphanage to help out and as I got to know the kids at the orphanage and got to learn the language a little more, I realized that the kids all had family in the village. And I was just like, Oh, I was like, well, why are you here then? Why are we calling you orphans? Like to me, an orphan meant a child that had no family. And so that just blew me away. And it just led me to educate myself a little more on the whole orphan crisis. And I learned that this was kind of an epidemic um, that kids were being put into orphanages due to poverty and it just blew my mind. And I, I just, I couldn't understand it or wrap my head around it. And on one of my visits, there are two different young moms that came and left their babies at the orphanage and they left just as sick, you know, just as impoverished as they came in and there was no support system for them. Yet we were take the orphanage was taking this child and offering health care and education and clean water and all these things the child did not care about. <laughs> you know, um, they just wanted their mom. And this one little boy, there was no way any of us could comfort him. Uh, the whole week we were there, he was just an emotional wreck because all he wanted was his mom. And I just couldn't let that go and just... Uh, to me, it was just like, why are we doing this? Like, we need to do things differently. Like, we should be supporting that mom to take care of her child. So uh, that kind of created a just a desire to do something to help keep families together in Haiti. And so God put on my heart to start a project, uh, just making simple pieces of jewelry for some of the moms that had come to the orphanage to try to leave their children. And... Um, to me, it was just like, let's just help a couple moms. And then, so I started doing this and then all of a sudden <laughs> it kind of exploded and, and people were really, you know, loving the product and loving what it was doing. And then our family started thriving and it really turned into something I didn't anticipate or expect. But um, now we just had our six year anniversary and we've been able to keep 150 kids with their families. Um, and these are all parents that were at the orphanage trying to leave their children so yeah tell, <laughs> tell awesome. us <laughs> yes yes tell us a little more specifically what it is that your organization does that helps these families stay together so what we do is we work with referrals only so um, organizations will refer us like orphanages that have had parents at the point of like I just can't feed my child. We can't send them to school. Um, so the women that come to us are referrals. And what we do is we teach them how to make jewelry or sew, and then they make products and then we pay them uh, a fair wage so that they can actually afford to feed their children, send them to school, pay their rent. Um, and even more of that, we've had four of our uh, families be able to purchase land and build homes so now they're homeowners, so and also able to start their own businesses on the side, uh, way more than I ever anticipated or imagined. So yeah, we sell jewelry and uh, like hats and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And you sell it in Canada and the U.S. or online all yes. over the world? And online. Yep, online. And we do wholesale too. So we have some, you know, places in the U.S. as well that carry our product. So we sell it wherever people want to buy it because we just want more jobs for our mamas and Haiti. <laughs> yes. And tell us the name of it and we'll have information in the show notes specifically about where they sure. can find it. But tell us just a little more for people who are listening and interested right now. So it's called Little by Little. And uh, the reason we chose that name was it was from a Haitian proverb. So there's a Haitian proverb. This is Little by Little. A mother bird builds her nest. And we thought it was very fitting. Uh, for what we were doing is we're helping families create homes for their children 
So, and yeah, little by little, we can make a big difference. So that's what it's called. And the website is littlebylittle.ca. .ca. Canada, CA. Or Canada. (laughs) (laughs) So you, it's been six years since you launched this. Six years, yeah. Now, Mm -hmm. at the same time, Greg, tell us about your experience of where God has led you with your calling. So I was a uh, branch manager of a heating and air conditioning wholesaler. I was in that business for, I don't know, 17 years or something. But the last few years, I just felt this real gnawing that I just wanted to do something more productive. You know, I know that we need uh, the secular world jobs, but for me, I just really felt like I, I wanted to be do something else. Uh, when I went to a conference in Chicago in 2012, uh, it was after it was after coming back from Nepal. Anyways, at this conference, there was this table set up of this organization called Safe Families, and it intrigued me. And I and I was reading through the the, the literature, and I listened to the talk of the man at the table, and he was explaining to me that Safe Families offers temporary care to children whose families are in a crisis situation while also offering wraparound support for the parents just through fostering and adopting you know you begin to you begin to piece together that in some of these cases if these parents had had the support they needed they probably would have been able to keep their family together so i thought what a great ministry this is but i sort of i sort of just resolved to myself that what a great ministry this is, but it'll never work in Canada. And I just kind of walked away and just forgot about it. But then a couple of years later, I heard they were having an info session here in London about bringing safe families to London. It had already been in Toronto since 2012, and uh, which, which I didn't know about. But So I went to this info session and I listened to the director, uh, Jennifer Francis, the director of Safe Families Canada, talk about the vision of the ministry and how it serves families. And I got so incredibly excited that uh, at the end, they asked if there was people that wanted to take part in forming a steering committee to help launch safe families. And I I jumped at it and immediately said, not only do I want to be part of the steering committee, but I want to work for this ministry. So it took us about two years to finally launch. And thankfully they uh, offered me the position. So I resigned from my previous employment and we launched in April of 2017. And I, I think it's been going phenomenal. I'm incredibly grateful for not only the volunteers that have come forward, uh, but also incredibly grateful for the families that I have been blessed to be able to meet and to walk with and to serve and to see the church just mobilized to help families stay together. So combined, we, Isabel and I often like to say that we advocate for family preservation globally through little by little and locally through safe families. It's wonderful. It's really, really fantastic. And I, I have not been able to be part of safe families because we do not have it in the state of Idaho. But what I do know about it is that it, it can meet a need so that children never end up in the system at all. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that, is just having been a foster parent, you know, I think you're so right that so many people, if they just had the support and help and the education and whatever else they need, their children would never have entered the system. And I think once they're in the system, it gets really, really complicated. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. I read a study recently that spoke about the effects of the foster care system, or, or I should say the effects on a mom of their children being in foster care. And they talked about the increased use in antidepressants in suicide and things like that. When a child has been apprehended from them, the emotional drain on the parent is overwhelming. You know, I understand there are some cases where there's abuse and neglect, but there's situations where we could be there proactively and offset that ever happening in the first place. Yeah. Do you have a, a story you could share with us? Oh man, I have so many. Family story. (laughs) I'll 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 give you one. uh, We actually have a video about it now, which I'm thankful for. But I still love telling the story. So there was uh, I got a I got a phone call from 
the Children's Aid Society. I have a great relationship with the Children's Aid Society, so I'm, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that they allow us as a, as a Christian ministry to be one of their resources. Um, I got a call from the Children's Aid Society saying they had a mom who was in the hospital who had basically died on the table and was revived, and she had three kids at home. She actually had four kids at home, but the 16-year-old was taking care of these these younger boys, and it was too much for her, so they asked if we could uh, take these boys in and, and for about two weeks. And so I reach out to my host home network, find a family who can take them. And so um, we were able to place them. Mom's in the hospital at this point. So I'm visiting her and, and then I'm getting other people to go visit her. And at the same time, Isabel is sharing this story with her women's Bible study. And um, one of the moms or one of the women in her study is a mom who had gone through what this mom was going through. She was in the hospital because she had a, uh, a very drastic eating disorder, which brought her to the, the brink of death pretty much. So this mom that Isabel knows uh, had also had an eating disorder, but she had come through it. She had gone through uh, rehabilitation and all that. So I was able to match the two of them up. And so the mom from our church was able to walk with the mom through safe families and not only be a support for her, but also help her to make some tangible steps to be able to come out of that eating disorder, or at least, you know, get to a point where she didn't need uh, a six month to a year long rehab, which it would have been too much for us to place her kids for that long, because these children have faced a lot of trauma and a lot of uh, difficulties. So they were a lot for the host home. In fact, over the course of time we've worked with this mom, they've actually been in, in three different host homes just because they, they do have some, some really high needs. But in the end, mom is now healthy. She is not fully healed, but she is uh, probably 80% there. And she would be the biggest proponent of safe families and of the support that we're able to give not only her, but her children. If I was to think about the amount of people that wrapped around her and her children, it would probably be like 30 people from the church who just in various different ways were able to serve her. So that's, that's one of my favorite stories. Most of the stories aren't as, um, as, in, uh, as difficult as her situation was. A lot of times it's just a mom who needs help finding a job or a mom who needs help while she's in the hospital for a couple of days. But Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this one was was a tremendous outpouring of God's grace, not only on the mom, but on the volunteers as well. This has been an amazing conversation. Is there any like final thing either of you want to share before we wrap up? I guess just one more thing that we feel really passionate about is Isabel and I are also, we, we were given the blessing to start an orphan care ministry at our church. And so uh, there's six of us that are leading this orphan care ministry. And out of that, we want to be able to encourage more families to be foster families, to be adoptive families, safe families, to serve globally. Uh, But what we recognize is that what people really need is support networks around them. And Mm -hmm. so we try to do that within our church to be that support network. We uh, just finished going through uh, a TBRI curriculum that took us over probably a year and a bit. And now we're using a trauma-competent care curriculum. So I would just say, I don't know, maybe by way of of encouragement for other families, if you are involved in fostering an adoption, it is just uh, a a must that you get a support system around you in however way that you can. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's kind of one of the things that we've always wanted to promote adoption and foster care and encourage other people to do it. But we felt that without a support system, it almost didn't feel right because we, we didn't have that support system and we knew how hard it was. So unfortunately, you know, sometimes when that's what's put on your heart, you're the ones that have to start it up. So yeah, <laughs> so, yes. yeah just an encouragement to people too. It's been um, so amazing uh, just to have that support system uh, with other families around that are going through the same thing. And it's, it's been an amazing experience. Well, thank you so much. And we, like I said, we'll have information in the show notes about 
safe families and little by little and all kinds of good things so that people can connect with you or learn more about what you do. Amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Thank Thank you. Bye. I don't know why, but I am always amazed by stories like that. I shouldn't be. We know we serve a huge God, but just to hear the story of where they were to where they are, uh, I think it also gives me hope for our kids, right? Like such a radical transformation. And we just, it's just such a good reminder that we have a God who does big things and can make big transformations. And so I just, there's a lot of places in our family and our relationships where I just hold on to that promise. And so I think that was really an encouraging part for me. Yes. I know Greg in something he wrote to me said there is no one who is too far from God for God to reach, reach that person, something like that. And I, I think it's so true. And I just, I loved hearing their story. I would hang out with them any day if they'd live just a little bit closer, you know, With both of us being members of the triad, we do have a particular passion for family preservation whenever possible. And so I love that we share that with Greg and Isabel and that actually their life work now and their ministry is focused on family preservation, both in Canada and in Haiti. Yeah, it's really interesting work. And I mean, really comes full circle, I think, in their story. Um, It's an important conversation that isn't always had sometimes when we're in this post-adoption space, you know, our attention is towards what's immediately right in front of us. But from a much bigger picture, I think this idea and supporting the places that are keeping kids from having to be separated from their families of origin in the first place are really important conversations to have. Be sure to head to the show notes where you can find a link to the video that Greg mentioned about the family that they helped with Safe Families. You can also find the website for Safe Families Canada. And then we have a video by Isabel explaining what her ministry little by little does and their work in Haiti, as well as their website. So there's lots to find there. We hope you'll go there today. You can find the show notes at theadoptionconnection.com slash 75. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.